The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see everyone tonight. We have winter back after our spring showers. So we're beginning a new theme now. Uh, if you've been coming for the last few Wednesdays, you know we've been reviewing some of the basics of sitting practice, talking about how to settle down, how to drop into the present moment, talking about the, uh, the importance of remembering, finding and remembering our aspiration for a meditation, how that supports the actual work of meditation, which is to connect and then to release into the experience the mind is knowing. So to know and then to let that knowing be the two parts of meditation practice, really the bulk of it. And then the last part we talked about over the last few weeks that we did at the very end of this sit is just to even drop the sense of being the somebody needing to meditate, how that gets in the way of seeing things clearly. So even if you feel like a complete beginner, play with that last part of the sit every time you sit. So give yourself a few minutes. It might be when you're a little, you know, a lot of people use their smart phones to time their sits, or you can download little meditation timers, or use your kitchen timer, put it off the side. And then when the, the time is over for your sit, give yourself another couple minutes to continue practicing, but in a more fully released way. So you're really not trying to get anywhere or make anything happen. And we're learning to rest more completely in the natural capacity to be awake or to be aware. And then any reactivity, any struggle to control or make something last or happen, we just immediately include that. That's also being known, just another thing being known. So we're learning to specifically take refuge in knowing as the only thing we're doing, just awareness. It's a wonderful skill to have then when we live our life, go through our day, and we're sort of being driven by our, our different reactive patterns, to be able to drop it in a moment and just to be. And in a sense, it's like when we then again respond to the moment, do something, it's like we're being born again. So even though two seconds ago, we were completely wrapped up and reactive, struggling in the moment. And then we notice that, and we go, we switch to this other mode of being. We're just being aware of being caught up in this case, being aware of whatever we're knowing and feeling in that moment. And it's not like we're going to be passive forever. Ultimately, it just needs to be in a moment, not even a second. But maybe as beginners, you know, several moments, a few seconds of just being. And then we allow our response, like if we are going to act, if we're going to say something or do something, we let it be born out of that moment or a few moments of just being present, just being awake, instead of being lost in our patterns of reactivity. So we've been doing these four patterns. Before I begin our new subject, which is patience, and we'll be working 
looking at patients for several weeks, at least a month. I just thought I'd just check and see if there's any questions about some of the instructions that have been put out there the last few weeks about sitting practice. Anything come to mind that seems relevant? Yeah, sure. as uh, some, I think I said in one of the talks that a phrase that one of my teachers used, uses non-distracted non-meditation. So there we are. Our meditation is over. We're no longer responsible to be the meditator. So we're just there, maybe feeling the effects of the set, maybe just relieved that it's over. But in any case, we're giving ourselves a couple minutes at least to just allow existence, this mind-body process, to just do what it's doing. And we're just, what we're discovering is that the awareness continues to happen. That's the point. That we can drop the sense of being the meditator, trying to be good, trying to take care of myself by meditating. We can put that aside and the quality of presence, of just being there in the moment, awake, aware, that continues. And we want to just tune into that natural force, that natural mo momentum of presence or awareness and learn to trust it more and more. So we can just tap into it in more moments during the day. So our practice isn't dependent on our formal sitting time. As great as that is, as important as it is to make it a, a consistent ritual in our lives, uh, Ultimately, our practice doesn't go far unless we're also having these moments throughout the day. Yeah, Nick. And so the uh, connecting and releasing, we should be able to take that into our daily life. Yeah, that's a more conscious strategy. You know, so, and especially like letting confusion or suffering be the mental trigger to connect and release. So, yeah, exactly, or whatever is predominant. But yeah, in that moment, it would be the sufferer. So we connect with it. Oh, suffering is like this. So we're connecting. Well, can that be OK? Can it be OK in this moment to be a suffering being? You know. And so that uh, Nick is referring to uh, just a little trick to remember the art of that meditation practice when we're more formally involved in the meditation experience of connecting and then releasing into the experience. And to bring that up during the day, too. In fact, all four of the parts are like different medicines. And you can bring them up during the day whenever it feels appropriate. Just the settling, dropping out of the story and settling. Remembering our deepest intention or aspiration. Just doing the basic work of life, connecting and releasing. So normally, as a, as a conventional human being, we don't practice connecting and releasing. We practice doing. So we could say a worldly person is being a doer. And so when you feel like you're the doer, you're not practicing. You're not a spiritual being. You're a worldly being. 
And a spiritual being, I mean, just in the way that I'm defining it now, is not a doer. It's a, it's a being that's connecting and releasing. In other words, spiritual path is a path of understanding. So we're putting all of life energy in understanding how it is now. And then the response to how it is, we let nature do that. So we show up. We practice showing up. We're not figuring out what we're going to say to the person. It's not like we're shutting down the personality or the part of the mind that is going to respond. But that's going to take care of itself. We're just emphasizing the awareness, the understanding piece. So that's really the work, the part that you mentioned, Nick, is really the, the bulk of the work of life and meditation. Is it possible to connect? Is it possible to relax or to release into what's being known, what we're connecting with? And let go of our obsessiveness with doing and fixing. Not that we're not doing. So not doing is also doing. So we're allowing doing to happen, speaking to happen, especially out in the world. You know, not too much in the formal sits that we're allowing the mind or the body to speak or do things. But in life, for sure, we're, we're taking, we're not sort of creating a container that doesn't allow for action. Action is very appropriate in life, of course. But we're discovering that the action arises best when we get out of the way. So instead, we give the sort of mind we've come to know, we give it one task, to see and to release into what's being seen, or to feel and to release into that experience of feeling, without being for or against action or response. Just let that happen. So when a response does happen, then we know that and we release into that. So let that happen. Let that be. And a lot of this will flow right into patience, you know, and the, and the work we'll do now for the next several weeks as we get interested in another one of these paramis. And those who have been coming to the talks for a while know that there is this list in Buddhism. It's different in the different lineages of Buddhism. But there is this list. Would you mind shutting the ventilation switch off? It's on the, just above the thermostat. I realized I turned it on after the yoga class, and it brings in fresh air. It's the one above. Yeah, just turn that down. Thanks. So patience is one of the ten paramis, and there's different numbers and different lineages. But it's just a map of wholesome mental or heart qualities. And um, the thing about the paramis, it's really this force of goodness in our lives. Every time... We relate with generosity every time we are motivated to not harm others, not harm ourselves. Every time we relate with wisdom or kindness or equanimity or resoluteness or patience and energy, commitment. These are the wholesome qualities of mind. And it makes, uh, it has an impact. The way it works in, uh, you know, I think more, not more than just Buddhism, just sort of the Eastern view of things, is that uh, the wholesome qualities are wholesome because they're reflecting something essential or universal. 
So it's not so much that we have to train the mind to be kind or train the mind to be equanimous. As much as it is, we have to learn how to drop self-centeredness that leads us to non-kindness or non-equanimity. So all of these wholesome qualities are just different facets or different reflections of the absence of self-centeredness. When we're caught in self-centeredness, in a way we have obscured or separated ourselves from what's universal. And when the habit, the momentum of self-centeredness is reduced or weakened, then our thoughts, our actions just come more and more in alignment with what is essentially here all the time. So it's funny. We actually have to work at being self-centered. Greed is work. Anger is work. Delusion is work. We, the mind has to construct a sense of apartness, separateness, and then react to that separateness in these different ways of greediness or craving, aversion, delusion. It actually takes work. But what happens is somehow when we do that, doing that confuses us. And so we keep doing it. We keep working or constructing and confusing ourselves. And this is what the Buddha calls samsara. So every time we Every time, for whatever reason, we come into alignment and a natural generosity, a natural kindness, a natural equanimity or natural patience, a natural strength or resoluteness that arises in our life, there's a certain resonance that we feel and it creates an imprint in the mind or force in the mind. And uh, we call this force parami. Like you could say, Boy, she seems to have a lot of parami. Or another word in from Pali is uh, demoja. It's like juice, spiritual juice. And it's it's like in that what we're picking up as we see somebody is we're picking up the the kind of uh, force of their mind, body, personality. You know, picking up how they are in a sense, vibrating with something universal. So it's not a personal juice, like sometimes we think of charisma, like this person has charisma, it's something you know they own. This is something universal. Now, it's manifesting in a specific way through that person, that person's life situation, that person's personality. But it isn't personal what's manifesting. And this is nice to see, so when you, you know, Think of somebody who you think is really good, you know, like the Dalai Lama or whoever it is for you that you think is a good person. As it could be your next door neighbor or your auntie or, you know, but somebody you just feel has a lot of good qualities. It's really nice, you know, as you're thinking about them or even seeing them, not to get stuck on the personality or who they are in terms of your relationship to them, but to see that goodness is something universal something that's moving through them. It's really the absence of obscuring forces, of diluting forces, like, what about me? You know, it's the absence of self-centeredness that gives 
their actions in the world or their way of being in the world a lot of juice, a lot of power. And all of us have this momentum, or we have this ground, I guess you could call it. No, in any given moment, we may be quite obscured, quite distracted from that, feeling quite disconnected, feeling quite alone and neurotic and apart from anything beautiful or good or whole. But that doesn't mean that's actually the way it is. It just means that's our experience in a particular moment. So part of this work we've been doing for over a year now, and will continue for at least several months as we finish up these 10 paramis, these different qualities, the whole point isn't so much to become the world's expert on patience, but rather in studying patience as it, as it arises in our day and in our meditation. As we get to know it better, we're going to begin to notice this demoja, this force of goodness. And it really transforms our relationship with our life. Because a lot of us, you know, either we're, we're kind of blindly, deludedly thinking we're great, or we hate ourselves in, in different ways, to different degrees of intensity at different times. You know, we, we don't like ourselves. We don't like our life. We don't like other people. We feel cheated. We feel alone. But the more we learn to recognize the force of goodness and to see that it isn't personal, it's, a, it's perfect because it's there, it's as real as anything, so we can trust it. But it isn't personal, so we don't have to protect it and get neurotic about it. That's why it's the perfect thing. It really resolves our problems. It's there for the taking. You know, we can forget about it, we can distract ourselves, but we can't actually ruin it. You know, and we can, you know, it is true, we can whip up a lot of distractions so that we actually live in hell for a while. You know, all of us have probably done that a few times in our lives, and we'll probably do it again. But even when we do that, even when we create drama and then get lost in it and suffer because of it, just that, that memory of this goodness will appease that kind of suffering that we can fall into. There's a nice statement that I like a lot. Um, a guy from Marianne Johnson. She's quoted, it's not her quote, it's just something she had heard. A person has made it at least, I'm sorry, a person has made a, a I, can't, I think I wrote it wrong. A, a man has made at least a start on discovering the meaning of human life when he plants a shade tree under which he knows full, full well he will never sit. So this is the flavor of that life where because we tune, attune to this force of goodness, because it is a force of goodness, it feels good, we feel safe, we feel like we can trust our heart or the way it is, it, it uh, pushes, it drops, causes the self-centeredness self to drop. And so our life, at least in that moment or for those moments, our life isn't about ourself. It's not about neglecting ourself either, but it's 
what we would call spontaneous goodness. We take care of ourselves spontaneously, and we take care of everything else spontaneously. And it isn't a big effort, and it isn't personal, so we don't take that sort of personal pride in it, even though it's beautiful and something to respect and to honor. But it isn't personal, so we don't get tight about it. So we can keep this in mind as we look into patience. Just that thought that there's already this force of goodness will really help us because you know, when we start highlighting a particular aspect of the mind, like patience, you know, a lot of us start to notice a lot of impatience. And it's actually really good to see impatience. But if we think impatience is infinitely deep, then we get discouraged. You know, and all of a sudden, it starts to make sense to live a life of distraction. I've got so much bad. I've got so much neurotic tendencies. Why not watch movies all day long? You know, whether that we go pay now 12 bucks, I heard, for a movie. <laughs> or we make up our own in our mind, which is a little less expensive. <laughs> but, but, you know, it can be equally confusing to us, deluding. <laughs> So we're living, this is what we do. We do this because we have, in a sense, given up hope that somehow taking up this path of understanding where we're using our life to deepen our understanding, using the mind to know the mind, using the heart to know the heart, if we feel like it isn't worth it because it's all bad, why bother? So it's important when we do see impatience in the weeks ahead, and, and the per pervasiveness of it, how often it arises. We get irritated. We become impatient. We want things to be other than they are. It's like the place to practice patience is first with impatience. There's a wonderful phrase, I think, from Sylvia Burstein, one of the teachers at Spirit Rock, that she uses when she's talking about patience. She says, this will change, but it can't be other yet. That could be like a mantra to use for the next several weeks. This will change. Whatever you're looking at, whatever you're seeing in your experience, this will change, but it can't be other yet. Given you know all the causes and conditions, it's like this now, and it will change. But right now, this is how it is. Because if it could be other, it would be other. So whatever we're feeling or knowing or experiencing right now is the fruit, you know, the culmination of everything that came before. This moment that's being known in this moment now for each of us is the unstoppable result of everything that's come before. So this, in this sense, resistance is really stupid. When we really understand how ineffective resistance is, we begin to understand the wisdom of patience. But patience just isn't a yielding thing. And this is one of the points I wanted to make tonight to begin our looking at our investigation into patience. And I think I haven't looked at it carefully, but I think this is true with any wholesome quality mental quality you can think of, that it, it really has two sides to it. Or you can 
work with it in two ways. One is its more assertive side, and the other is a more yielding side. Sometimes we think of this in terms of masculine and feminine, but it has nothing to do with being a male or a female, because you know each of us, with all of the wholesome qualities, we want to be able to uh, tap in to the assertive aspect of that quality and the receptive aspect of that quality. So you can even think back on some of the other paramis we've covered over the last year. You know, we did generosity and we did non-harming or morality and we did truthfulness, we did energy and re uh, renunciation. So we've done those five so far. And uh, you can see, like, for example, with renunciation, you know, part of renunciation is a sort of yielding quality of being content with what we have, being satisfied with the moment that's arising now. But part of renunciation is a very forceful, strong quality of being able to let go of what we don't want to let go of. Knowing that all things go away, we're willing to let this go before it gets taken away from us. Right? Like we have two things, and we like them both, and we can give one away. We can share it. And so let's look at that or think about that in terms of patience. Because generally, you know, depending on our personality, uh, we're usually better at one or the other, the assertive or the receptive. And it may be different in different parts of our life. In some parts of our life, it's easier, easier for us to be assertive. In other parts, easier to be receptive. So then in terms of patience, you know, we want to see, like, maybe for you, patience always means the receptive, just letting things be. But maybe that's unhealthy. Maybe your patience is masquerading. It isn't actually patience. It's actually fear, you know, fear of action, fear of saying what needs to be said. So we have to be on the lookout. Or maybe, you know, your idea of patience is to sit with pain. You know, I'm not moving. And it's a kind of, it sort of has its, has its own shadow side of like uh, a contraction gets synonymous with patience. You know, I'm not moving. I can take this. I'm not going to be the first to budge. Even in relationships, we are like that, right? You know. I do that with my wife sometimes, like there's some mess in the house. I'm not going to be the first to do it. Even though it's bugging me, you know, and it would take two seconds to take care of it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be patient until she recognizes that she left that there. And we'll take care of it. And But it's true. I can actually concoct some idea in my mind that I'm being patient with what's bugging me. You know, I'm just being patient with it. But I'm not being patient. I'm, I'm being rigid and contracted, and I'm suffering. So we want to be on the lookout for our particular tendency. And then we want to open up the other possibilities. So if you tend to be the assertive side, then really look at how to deepen, strengthen, sort of activate this potentiality. Because remember, this is a natural, essential part of the heart the capacity for patience. 
it's not something you have to generate. It's much more about uncovering and not being fooled by our habits that are saying impatience, struggle, react. And just to get a sense, like uh, when I develop patience, you know, like when we're sitting and we're dealing with, with pain in the body, you know, one expression of patience would be the arising of, of just the natural force of compassion. Oh, the leg really hurts. Oh, the mind is really agitated by the pain. It's really restless because of the pain. Oh, the mind hates what it's doing. Oh, I could move my leg. <laughs> I could release the pain. I could reestablish a healthier balance and healthier attitude about the meditation. I could learn to see and uh, see the goodness of it, to be inspired by it, all by simply being patient that this body isn't ready to sit still for 45 minutes. It can sit still for 10 minutes, and then it needs a little adjustment. Or it can sit still for 20 minutes, and then it needs a little adjustment. So for some of us, that would be the expression of patience. For other people, it's like the pain arises, and the impulse is to fix it, to keep fixing. I can fix that. I can take you know, master of the universe, always keeping things right. And so now, patience might manifest as just allowing things to fall apart, letting the body ache, letting the mind get agitated, not feeling like we have to control everything, really learning to be patient with chaos, patient with messiness. And that may be how you're going to work on patience for the next few weeks. And then you could just translate these two approaches into daily life situations too so that you know sometimes patience really is uh, uh, appropriately bearing what bearing with what is unbearable relaxing staying with what is unbearable and other times patience is a kind of more like that compassionate side the receptive side well, this practice will develop in its own time. Wanting, pushing isn't always the best medicine. Starting over is also good medicine. Forgiveness is also good medicine. Resting is also good medicine. Being willing to be second best is also good medicine sometimes. And the idea that we learn when we uh, work with all the wholesome qualities with both sides, is that there isn't always, it isn't always one way. It's like the, what's good medicine, what's skillful practice, depends on knowing that moment. It's about understanding the way it is in order to understand how best to relate, how best to settle in. And even that phrase that I mentioned from Sylvia Burstein earlier, this will change, but it cannot be other yet. You know, you can even see that, too. It's like, uh, this will change. It's kind of an assertive statement, like, uh, yeah, I don't need to be afraid of you. This will change, you know, when difficult things arise in our lives. To be able to say that, this will change. It won't always be this way. It's, it's very powerful. It's a, a real strength. But then there's the second part of the truth, but it can't 
yet be other than this way. And that's sort of like a surrender or a willingness to let a moment make its impact. So when we have a painful emotion, a painful mind state, sure, we can understand this too will change. But right now, this is how it is. So we have to allow the heart to be vulnerable, to be receptive, to be hurt. What allows us to be hurt is we realize the hurt is just this. What makes hurt unbearable is when we think, it's going to hurt now, it's going to hurt later, it will hurt forever. It's like, you know, in a breakup, um, and we feel that terrific pain that we can feel in a breakup. And somehow, you know, it's not even that we're thinking this consciously, but somehow there's the idea that it's never going to go away. And the combination of that emotional pain with that maybe unconscious thought, it's never going to be other than this, makes it truly unbearable. But when we understand in a moment when the mind is clearer, Actually, the pain is even more intense because the mind's clearer. We're not using distraction. But the mind also understands that this pain is just this pain right now. And there's no part of the mind thinking unconsciously or consciously that it's always going to be this way. That extra piece is gone. And it's actually bearable. And this is true with physical and emotional mental pain. And so patience, this is what patience allows. It's the wisdom to allow the moment to make its impact, to let the moment in. It's the big yes, you know, in spiritual life. Yes, this is how it is. And then the assertive quality is, but things will change. So one of the things we discover by being willing to be receptive is actually a catalyst for change. And what generally sticks us in grooves, repetitive grooves, is when we resist being receptive. Resist feeling, seeing, knowing, oh, it's like this now. It's our reactive, our sort of saying no, the big worldly no, instead of the big spiritual yes. When we do the big uh, worldly no, no, not this, I want that, or no, go away, then what we set in motion is this repetitive, you know, this samsara, this cycle of suffering where we're saying no, but then in the next moment we have to say no again and no again and no again. But once we say yes to something difficult, actually it doesn't matter if it stays around, right? Because if it does stay around, we already know, because the, the last moment we said yes, we already know saying yes is possible. So we can say yes again. And the side effect of saying yes is it tends to loosen all the screws. Everything just starts to move and change much more fluidly when we're saying yes, yes, yes. And then it's easy to be assertive and say yes, you know, to kind of, uh, you're going to change. It's like we're, we're not afraid to move into life. We don't have to be as careful like what's going to happen down the road. Because we understand the power of receptivity, we're able to move forward and do what needs to be done, say what needs to be said, let go of what needs to be let go of. 
So the two really support each other. Learning how to be receptively patient allows us to be assertively patient. So I'll leave it here. And we'll, like I mentioned, we'll be talking about patience for uh, several weeks. It would be nice to hear from people what you've already learned from your impatience, one of our best teachers, and from patience, questions you have about the talk. What comes to mind? Yeah, Patty. Well, one thing that I've experienced, and maybe it's, I don't know if it's right or not, but just, is when I let go that patience has to look like calm, then it, it gives me a little bit more freedom with patience. I mean, maybe sometimes patience feels like burning, or, yeah. but is that impatience, or is it just me letting patience take whatever form it's going to take? Yeah, so that's... It's a good point because, like, I remember a couple years ago, I was having, there was just difficult things going on in my life and really painful things. And uh, I was reacting. You know, I was defensive and, and reactive in different ways at different times. And, uh, I, you know, I had enough awareness to know, I don't, this is not who I am. This is not what I should be doing, you know. I should be clear and not defensive. I should be wise and not neurotic. I should be, you know, all these things. But, you know, after a while, I realized, well, that wasn't helpful and that wasn't happening. And so there I was, you know, generally speaking, being more reactive, being more defensive, being less skillful, and learning that it was uh, learning this very powerful lesson that I could be patient with that. I could allow that to be, that reactivity to be, because that's how it was. I didn't have enough skill to be skillful in this life situation that was happening. I didn't. But I did have enough skill to be patient with the lack of skill. And that felt really good. It kind of brought me right back into my practice, even though there's a lot of defensiveness and, uh, you know, less skill, generally, than, you know, I would like in my life, in my actions. So that's the thing about it. There's always place for patience, no matter how wild or messy our actions, our words are in the moment. We can be patient with the mess. Make It's like, uh, you know this probably, but Joko Beck has this wonderful simple phrase, ABC, a bigger container. So when things are difficult, we just ABC, we make a bigger container. And that's a, the flavor of patience in that sense, where we, we're allowing things to be, not that it's preferable, but this is how it is now. Yeah, yeah Nick. Sometimes when the idea of patience <coughs> comes to my mind when I be impatient, it feels unbelievable. How so? That something that I've done over and over in my work, it would actually always put the awareness would always be anger, and I watch you starve myself. And so on the idea of patience, since the idea of meditating, it popped in my mind, it's like unbelievable. And then when I start incorporating it, it gets more unbelievable and very believable at the same time. And then it turns out it's a connection. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. It's really powerful. I'm going to say uh, what I heard 
Nick saying different words. So when we're in the dark place, difficult place, the mind's caught, it's like one of the real uh, effects of practice, continuous practice over time, is that there in that dark, difficult time, it's like uh, little seeds. You'll just notice little seeds arising. And it's like part of the mind just doesn't want to believe it because it doesn't make sense. But if you're, if you're willing to recognize those little seeds of patience or whatever it is, love, forgiveness, it will, it will completely transform the darkness. doesn't mean your life situation is going to change at all. But all of a sudden, it's like uh, bringing, lighting the image that I think the Buddha used is like lighting a candle in a dark space. Even if it's been a dark cave for hundreds and hundreds of years, as soon as you light a candle, there's light in that cave. It doesn't matter how dark it's been for how long. So to just notice these little seeds when they arise, and it just changes our perspective on the darkness. Because when we're in a dark place, there's the delusion is telling us it will always be this way. This is who I am. I'm this suffering human being. I'm this bad person. I'm this. I'm having this difficult life. But when we see something wholesome and beautiful, it's hard to hold up that deluded idea. It just doesn't fit the experience in the moment. Other thoughts people have. What have you learned about patience? Yes. What's your name? Um, um, I've started to notice my impatience with myself or with other people as kind of a, a great cruelty to, you know, I'll act rashly or snap at someone and immediately think, I, I wasn't letting them be whatever that was, or I was expecting something of them that they weren't delivering or weren't or couldn't even occur because it's in my imagination and not a part of their reality here at the moment as well. But, and I don't know if that's like a seed of patience popping up in a moment when I need to see it, but it's really, it's striking me lately how cool it is to be impatient with anyone else, especially with myself, I can't be very impatient. But it seems really a hard, kind of a hard thing to do. Yeah. And you bring up a really good point. And I mentioned briefly earlier about part of our work is getting to know impatience. But let's ask ourselves, what actually allows us to see the force of impatience clearly? It's like if our mind is continuously colored by negative forces like impatience and irritation and aversion and fear and anxiety and greed, and well, it's not easy to really understand impatience when it arises in the mind. But if we have some flavor of patience, then impatience really stands out. And so, you know, to notice, like you, you mentioned, Allie, that, that seeing impatience as a kind of cruelty, I'm guessing that that clarity is arising because you understand what patience actually feels like. Not intellectually, but energetically. And so it makes the opposite really start to stand out. And this is how it works. You know, The more we have experience insight into a more natural mind, which is patient and loving and clear, 
the more we're going to notice more and more subtle ways the opposites as they arise in our life. And it's a little disconcerting because we might think we're a really good person and then we just realize all the little acts of violence. Like I notice for me that I'll have a conversation with somebody and often, you know, if I think I know how they're going to end their sentence, I'll end it for them. (laughs) (laughs) Or just kind of jump into what I'm going to say as if I've already heard what I think they're going to say. And, uh, And I'm really... I can't stop myself always, but I'm beginning now at least to see that, like you said, you know, a little act of violence. And it's actually not so little because the more sensitive we become, it gets bigger. It's like we really see how inappropriate it is. Even though most people maybe wouldn't notice it, we're noticing it, and it's real for us. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. What else comes to mind? Yeah, Casey. This comes from you about a year ago, but I remember you saying something about patients, Being, it was like two things. One was leaning into the way you either want something to be or not want it to be. And then at the same time, that is something that you aren't. Yeah. Well, it's the big, you know, it's the big worldly no, which is contraction, which is suffering. And, you know, in Buddhism, we have a word for that. We call it dukkha. And it's really nice to reduce all of our stress and suffering, difficulties that we have in life, to this particular experience of contraction in the heart, where on some energetic level, the heart is squeezing. Not, not, I'm not talking about the physical heart, of course, but sort of at the core of our being, there's a energetic contraction. And that's that worldly no, not like I want that, I I need that. So it's a no to this moment, whether it's about attraction and and desire or about aversion and fear. The the energetic effect is the same. It's like a, you know, we live in a very fluid world. This is just some conceptualizing, but you might find this helpful. We live in this very fluid world And so in a fluid space, in order for the mind to project something it wants or what it wants to get away away from, it has to create ground. It has to create sort of a solid center in order to push off to get what it wants or push away what it doesn't want. And we do that by suffering, by contracting. I mean, it's the strangest thing. Having a sense of self and a sense of self that wants things that are pleasant and wants to get rid of things that aren't pleasant means we're, we're dependent on contracting. It is synonymous. Attachment or this contraction is synonymous with self-centeredness. It's really, they're not two different things. It's not like when I'm a self-centered human being, I have a tendency to get attra- uh, attached or contracted. The contraction is the sense of self. No contraction, no sense of self. So when you're having moments, now you, we don't notice these moments. They don't register in our mind, but you're out in the proverbial meadow picking flowers on a beautiful you know, late spring day and uh, with your favorite person and you know the favorite fragrance in the air and barefoot on the nice tender grass and walking along 
And, uh, you know, the mind will be content in that experience. But just because the mind is content and it isn't pushing and pulling and the sense of self fades away, maybe in moments disappears because the meadow is endless. You don't have to worry about it running out <laughs> and spring will continue forever. So it's all the, you know, the perfect utopia. Just because the sense of self is diminished or, or dropped, that contraction is dropped, doesn't mean we're going to notice it, that it's dropped and understand what's happened. So we can have moments of freedom without understanding there's a moment of freedom. We need to be mindful and understand what just happens in the mind so that, in a way, we learn to live that way. So uh, I'm not sure how we got I got to this place, but I'll leave it there. <laughs> yes, yeah, Bonnie. I guess I never understood it this way, so I just want to repeat what I think you said, so I have it correct. It sounds like you were saying that there's contraction that creates yourself. Well, they're synonymous with self. Synonymous. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's suffering that creates contraction. Oh, I would say contra- I would say contraction is just another word for dukkha or suffering. Okay, so I was going to ask that suffering is what yeah, or that's what we take the self to be. Like if we look right now, and I do, do this pragmatically. This is not meant to be philosophical. Just pragmatically, you know, how do you know you're who you think you are? You know, it's like there's some energetic thing that feels substantial, right? Me, here. What, what is that? Well, it's tension. We feel tension. But... The more we practice, the more refined awareness becomes. The more we have more and more experiences of that sense of contraction not being there in a moment. And it's almost like a free fall. It's like there's no, there's, there's no um, hardness, there's no rigidity, there's no uh, ground in one's mind-body experience for a moment. Or when the mind is in balance, the concentration is pretty good. You can have that experience. And then as soon as you take it personally, it's not different, you know. Then there's uh, some contraction. Or as soon as you want it to last, or as soon as, you know, you're frightened by it, the contraction immediately reappears. So when you, when you feel like you're there as a person, a separate individual apart who wants to be happy, you'll notice that always, there's always tension in the mind and body. And if you have the wherewithal to notice when there's not tension in the mind or body, you'll notice that there's freedom from self. There's no self-centered grasping, no self-centered doing in that moment. It doesn't mean that the body isn't doing something or the mind isn't thinking something, but there's just no contraction. It's like a breeze blowing through the meadow. There isn't anybody doing it. So there may be a thought going through the mind or the body doing some action, but there's no... It's not based on a sense of a contraction, a sense of Mark doing that. So if I could just take it a bit then further. So then if we succeed in ending our reaction to suffering, that our self will naturally fall away. Yeah. But wanting to end suffering is tricky. 
it, it, what we have to do is we have to deepen understanding so we understand how suffering is ending on its own. Because the idea that I have to end suffering or I have to stop contracting is missing the point. Because the contraction is arising out of habit. It got set in motion. There isn't anybody contracting. So we have to be careful in how we configure the problem that we have. There is a problem, in a sense, there is suffering. But we shouldn't assume we understand how that's coming to be. That's why the Buddha emphasizes understanding the experience of suffering, understanding the experience of contraction. Don't assume you know what it's about. Because it's the not understanding suffering that causes suffering. It's missing the point. Because from the beginning of time, human beings have been wanting to resolve the experience of suffering. I mean, we're all trying to do it, but we keep basically not having any uh, success. Yeah, and then it will have to be relatively short. Trying to bring this back to the, the Buddhist philosophy or, or teachings of Buddha. They, my memory tells me there's, there's three aspects. There's a lack of permanence, pure permanence. Yeah, so anicca is the impermanence, dukkha is unsatisfactoriness, and then anatta is the conditional or not self nature of experience no center to experience. So, yeah, that's just uh, discovering over and over in little, from different angles, little glimpses of these underlying truths of experience. And it's that understanding that itself undoes the habit of contraction, the habit of suffering. It's the not understanding these three things, or these th three things just stand for Dhamma, the way it is, the sort of underlying nature of things, of the mind and all things. It's not understanding that that perpetuates this habit of struggling, of clinging, of grasping, of tensing. Let's leave it here. Take a moment to take a few breaths together and let go of the words. can appreciate this laboratory of our lives and uh, being willing to commit to a life of deepening understanding. Each moment is an opportunity to open and see as clearly as possible how it is now. Just to trust that deepening understanding to take care of us in the deepest way. And thanks for coming, everyone.